friends to the tomb of ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. I am the tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Greetings, Tomb Believers. You're listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. I'm Trey Lawson, and with me as always is, um, James, uh, you think you forgot something there? Uh, what do you mean? I mean, uh, typically, I mean, I know this is audio, but we, we tend to, you know, have a little bit of a professional presentation here. You mean because I'm not wearing any pants? Yes, James, that is exactly what I mean. Why, Why are you not wearing pants? Well, you say you want to do an early morning recording. I just, you know, came whatever I was wearing. And, you know, I, I, I'm not wearing pants. I have to say, it's delightfully breezy. This, I, I am not comfortable with any of this. Um, I know it's early, but still, there has to be decorum. I mean, hey man, if it's before noon, I can't make any excuses for what I wear. <sighs> I mean, okay, it, it is early. Uh, may, maybe caffeine will help, um... Do you want coffee or something? Uh, no, my doctor wants me to drink less coffee. Um, and by the doctor, I mean, you know, the doctor. Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, but if you've got any um, Diet Coke, I, I wouldn't say no to that. Um, would a orange vanilla Coke Zero work? Sure, why not? Okay, because I've been stocking up on those. So, um, yeah, I, I guess we, we will start the day with sodas instead of coffee. Mm, this actually gives me an idea. But why don't you tell the folks what comics we're covering this week? Absolutely. We are sort of back to basics this week. Um, We are looking at Werewolf by Night number 5, Tomb of Dracula number 8, Marvel Spotlight featuring Ghost Rider number 10, and Adventure into Fear with the Man-Thing number 14. Yep, really good core characters here, and... I gotta say, spoilers, but some really good books, actually. Yeah, I thought we had some good issues this week. Um, we'll get into the specifics of it, but I, I don't know that there's necessarily a bad one in the bunch. No, but we'll get more into that after this quick break. I guess I really should put some pants on. I think you'll like this house. Uh, isn't this supposed to be haunted? Haunted? What an absurd idea. <laughs> so, I mean, what would a ghost be doing here? <laughs> haunted? No other diet soft drink delivers the real cola taste of one-calorie Diet Coke, the real one. It's lifting more and more spirits every day. The move is on to Diet Coke. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. This week we're covering books in June 1973, and we're starting off with Werewolf by Night number 6, Carnival of Fear. Writer is Lynn Ween, penciler is Mike Plug, inker is Frank Bull, colorist is Glennis Ween, letterer is John Costanza, and editor is Roy Thomas. You know, Trey, I think this is our first credit for Glennis Ween. I believe so. I haven't seen one yet, so th- this is sort of a milestone, I guess. Yeah, and of course, this her name was Glennis Ween at the time. Um, it was a maiden name Glennis Oliver, but she was called Glennis Ween at the time because, of course, she's married to the writer of this comic, Lynn Ween. Right. And she's actually um, noteworthy for being one of the creators 
to actually appear in that unofficial Marvel DC crossover. Right. Um, which, if, if you're not familiar with this, it has been covered extensively on the internet, but um, there was a trilogy of comics that crossed over from Marvel into DC back to Marvel, um, which all take place at the same time during the same event, which is uh, in Rutland, Vermont, uh, at the Rutland Halloween Parade. Right. And which had also been covered in Avengers number 83. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, this is the f- the the one that crossover in crosses over into DC and Marvel is the one that everybody talks about, right? And 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 with good reason because the the crossover functionally is a crossover not just because of the shared setting, but because the creators of the comics appear as themselves in the book, right? And you actually see events that happened in the other companies' comics, but from different angles, right? Um, and so, in, in, like in the first one. Uh, Jerry Conway, Steve Englehart, and uh, the Weens come across Hank McCoy on their way to the parade. Yeah, but I just thought that was that was fun. Yeah, no, it's it's great, and the, those crossover issues are kind of a weird, fun precursor to the sorts of crossovers that were more formal that you'd see later on. Yeah, um, and it and it also, I mean, stuff like that, and and I guess before it, the the Stan and Jack putting themselves into the books um, is ultimately you get the weird, wild stuff that uh, Grant Morrison does in the 80s and 90s. True. True. Uh, Speaking of weird, wild fun, let's go ahead and talk about Werewolf by Night number six. Uh, Number five? No, this is six. Is it? Yeah. Okay. The document said five. Oh, did it? Yep. (laughs) Crap. Hold up. Let me make sure before I summarized the wrong damn comic. It's Carnival of Fear. Okay, so it is Carnival of Fear. Excellent. I'm pretty sure. I, hold on. Let me... I, I have these pulled up. I could just switch to them. Um, I'm glad you have it pulled up, because I have Untold Tales of Spider-Man number 17 pulled up. <laughs> that is not a horror comic. But it's lots of fun. Right? It's got Hawkeye, and it's Kurt Busiek. Leave me alone! <laughs> um, yes, because uh, issue 5 was the bad one with the uh, the plot that didn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I remember now. <laughs> Flashbacks. Canes. Got it. Yep. All the canes. All the canes. Raising cane. <laughs> but not even the good Marvel cane. The one that's a Spider-Man no. clone. Oh, man. Can you imagine how <laughs> weird this would have been if this is if this is Spider-Man cane? Right? Oh, I want to see man. Spider-Man cane fight Man-Thing because they both have burning touches. <laughs> like, they have the same superpower. If you experience burning touch, please wash your hands after cutting jalapenos. <laughs> okay. Made that mistake once, never again. I did that once with some Serrano peppers, so yeah, I feel ya. <sighs> okay, so, Werewolf by Night number six. Yes. The Russell siblings and their friend, Buck Cohen, are out for a drive and decide to visit a traveling circus. Unbeknownst to them, the home to the Swami Riva, who has foretold Jack's arrival and sees it as a way to turn around the surface's fortunes. Reva wastes no time on luring Jack Russell to his tent and placing the young lycanthrope in a trance. Liza and Buck, thinking Jack has ditched them, leave as the circus packs up to move on to the next town. At the next town, the Carnies find their new hairy attraction harder to manage than they thought, almost strangling the life of the carnival barker, Mr. Calliope who is only saved by the intercedence of the diminutive animal trainer, Midge. 
Sensing the werewolf has more trouble than he's worth, Midge tries to set Jack free in the night, but remembering the little man's earlier beating, the werewolf attacks. Midge escapes with the help of the circus's strongman, Elmo, and other carnies. The werewolf chases the dwarf into the circus's animal tent, where the trainer has set loose the circus's big cats and orders them to attack Jack Russell. Meanwhile, police detective Vince Hackett investigates the death of the brothers Kane and starts to wonder if Los Angeles may indeed have a werewolf on the loose. That was a short summary, but that's a really good issue. It, it, it is probably the best Werewolf by Night issue we've had in a while. Uh, maybe since the uh, the one that directly dealt with the Darkhold. Exactly. And I think one of the big strengths of this is, you know, you actually have plot development. Right. With um, the introduction of this detective, um, Vince Hackett. And also, uh, let's not underplay the fact that we have the return of Buck Cohen. Buck motherfucking Cohen, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. His car is fixed up and ready to be back on the road to get them to that carnival. I'm pretty sure this is a replacement car. Because <laughs> there is no way you're repairing that car from the last issue. I mean, that's fair. It's been a few issues, though. He's had time. Right. Um, one thing that, that isn't in the summary, and I completely understand why, because it is the least plot-related, is it is kind of padded out at the beginning with a lengthy fight between uh, the werewolf and some union dock workers, I guess. They're truckers. Oh, they're truckers, yeah. But They're truckers, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but like, there, there's this lengthy fight that just sort of takes up space. And it's well done. It, the visuals are good. But it has no bearing whatsoever on the plot of the issue. Except um, Riva is watching it in his crystal ball. Right, that, that's the transition we get in and out of the fight, is that he's being observed the whole time. Yeah. Now... Something that may have larger implications for us is one of the reasons that Riva wants Jack is because he's got this thing called a bloodstone. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. Um, and I, we, We've mentioned a certain character by the name of Bloodstone before. Right, but I'm not sure if it's the same Bloodstone or... Who knows? Because I wasn't expecting the Darkhold to show up in Werewolf by Night. Right. But then there it was. And now we get, we're getting a bloodstone. I'm really curious, like, hey, what's the deal here? Right. Because, honestly, the first time I've ever seen the bloodstone show up is in that um, Captain America storyline. Right, right. The the hunt for the bloodstone. Yeah. Um, which just occurs to me we're probably going to be covering on this show. Which the the Marvel, like, the, the bloodstone that we're thinking of, the, the one that relates to the family of the same name... Um, is actually loosely connected to Marvel's version of Conan. Really? Because it, it uh, starts out as a meteor that crashes to Earth during the Hyborian Age. Wait, was I supposed to be reading Conan before this? <laughs> okay. I don't know that it ever really comes up in a big way, but, but technically the, the time in which that meteor lands on Earth is described as the Hyborian Age, which I'm pretty, okay. which I'm pretty sure is a Conan reference. And I know that wizard guy who originally showed up in Conan and Red Sonja shows up again later in the Avengers because despite not having the rights to Conan and Red Sonja anymore, they still had the rights to that wizard. Right, right. Um, uh, he, sh he shows up in the Kurt Busiek run of the Avengers. And I think this might be a different Bloodstone, though. Okay. They could be related, but um, because the, the Blood Gem, which is 
the thing that Ulysses Bloodstone has. Um, okay. First appearance in the Marvel Wiki is Marvel Presents number one, which is seventy five. We're not quite there yet. Right. So yeah, let's go ahead and um, since that doesn't seem related, let's go back to our um, subplot that's developing. Yeah. We actually have a subplot, and holy shit, the Kane brothers are actually relevant. <laughs> Who would have thought it? Right? Um, I Honestly, I'm just impressed that a police officer in a Marvel horror book is actually investigating a series of mysterious murders. Yeah. Because that doesn't usually happen in these books. No, it doesn't. And I kind of like the detective character. He's very 1970s. Yep. Um, he's this big, blonde, former linebacker. Yep. Vince Hackett. With rolled up sleeves and... Uh, the, the open collar. Yeah. This guy is 70s AF, and I am here for it. Yep. Uh, and, I mean, he looks like he could have walked off the set of, like, a mid-70s detective drama. Yeah. Like, he's got he's got the sideburns. He's got the... the uh, like, he's got the look. Right. I am digging him, and I hope he's around for more than just one other issue. I want him to meet Buck. Yeah, like like the detective and and the writer like exchanging barbs or whatever. Yeah, and I want like Buck to try to like lead him off the trail, right? Because we we know Buck knows that something's up. He has to have figured it out by now. Like, okay, let's even talk about that on page on page twelve. Yeah, last panel. Um, Liza's like, it's not like Jack to take off without telling me, Buck. Isn't Liza? Jack's been pretty moody these past weeks. Come on, let's head home. Maybe he'd hitched a ride back ahead of us. Like, he seems to know something. In fact, she's the one who knows he's a werewolf, and she seems oblivious right now. Right? I mean, dang, Liza. Uh, But we should probably talk about the Swami. Right. That is definitely a racially insensitive villain right there. You see, I'm pretty sure Riva is actually a second-generation Italian immigrant from New Jersey. (laughs) Ha ha ha! pretending to be an indian swami that actually would make it better i think it would make it so much better i would really appreciate right? it right so so you mean like uh, the the guy from the uh the anti-littering commercial that claimed to be native american for years but turned out was really italian you mean the one that was in our pr- previous episode <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of page 12 we get a good look at mr calliope here yeah and is it just me, or is Mr. Calliope supposed to remind us of somebody? Um, well, he does have a certain, uh, something. Yeah, a certain, um, I mean, he wears dark glasses, yep. he has a mustache, yep. he's kind of got longish hair in the back. Yeah, he's he's sort of the, the hype man for yeah. the show. Hype man, kind of reminds me of another famous hype man. Right. <laughs> Are you trying to tell us something, Mike Plug? <laughs> Um, you wouldn't be thinking of, of a particular someone whose um, name happens to be at the top of the first page of every issue. No. We're talking about Stan Lee. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, and so while we are talking about uh, Riva. Yes. And again, not McIntyre. Right. Um. We do need to talk about his uh, um, sidekick, uh, Midge. Right. Who, um, unfortunately, is not the amazing Miss Maisel. <laughs> Sorry, the Marvelous the marvelous Miss Maisel. Um, 
but instead is a little person. Yes. Who is also a lion tamer? Named Midge. Yeah, he's the animal trainer. And he's wearing a Flash Gordon outfit. I, I did notice that, that it's it's a very, like, 50s sci-fi kind of look. No, I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure it is straight up the Flash Gordon outfit from the comic strips. Okay. Yeah, I see the with, lightning bolt. Yeah. Yeah, with the lightning bolt and the studded black leather um, neck thing and the blue pants. Which is sort of, it's, it's sort of a nice nod to the fact that a lot of those early hero comic strips were drawing their imagery for heroes from carnival characters. Right. Superman was supposed to duplicate a circus strongman, hence the underwear on the outside and the cape. Exactly. And that's even more apparent if you've ever read any Golden Age Superman, where he has got the lace-up boots. And... Yeah. Yeah, he, he looks more like pro-wrestler than superhero in those early issues. Well, you'd know more about the, that than I would. I mean, because that also comes out of the circus strongman tradition. True. Um, I like their strongman. It is a bit off-putting that his name is Elmo, though. Yeah. Um, but, again, this is way before the little, um, red creature who taught my daughter about toilet training. Right. No, I mean, if, if anything, from this time period, Elmo, I would think of, like, Elmo Lincoln, the athlete who played Tarzan. Oh, that makes sense. Although... Have you seen that Elmo teaching um, Tyrion and um, Cersei to respect one another? I, I've seen uh, gifs of it, but I've not seen the full video. Yeah, I've seen that it exists. I've not watched the whole thing because I've not started watching season eight of um, Game of Thrones the, yet. They'll, they'll never top the one where Grover is uh, the 11th Doctor. <laughs> All right. So, crap. Where are we going from here? Um, so we were talking about the uh, the residents of the carnival, the, the the various carnies. Yeah, and and they do a nice job of sort of showing us conflict within that organization, um, and it's primarily through um, the the sort of disputes between uh, Midge and Elmo. Yeah, with Jack caught in the El- middle. Yeah, Elmo is this really sweet guy who you know, come on, Jack, forgive me, Jack, but if you don't. But I would not let Midge hurt you. But I also cannot let you hurt him. Stop yapping, you ape, and finish him. Now, while he's down. Yeah, and, like, I, I guess it's a little bit cliche, but I do I do enjoy the trope of the, like, pacifist strongman. The gentle giant, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and we get another nice sort of fight there uh, near the end as uh, Jack is released as the werewolf into the carnival. Right. I actually think Midge is fairly intelligent here oh he had the right idea yeah he didn't he didn't count on the werewolf being smart enough to hold a grudge right as far as you know thinking things through and thinking hmm maybe i shouldn't let reva do this sinister plot for werewolf he had the right idea just release the werewolf into the night and let him go go it's just because he's an asshole right the werewolf has a grudge right and the, the fight with the carnies is good. Yeah. It, it, is carnies the accepted term these days? Um, I, I, we could probably say carnival performers. Uh, but of course, we get a great cliffhanger. I think this is our first cliffhanger of the proper Werewolf by Night title. I think you're right, because most everything up to this point has been one shot, basically. Yeah, where we get the cliffhanger of... Uh, the big cats versus the werewolf. Yeah, and a most definitely continued. 
Yeah. This issue was good stuff. It was. It was. I was impressed by this. It's um, It's got good art, good visuals. Uh, even the backgrounds in a lot of panels are really well done. So this is definitely not one of those instances where Plug is seeming to be spread thin. Ooh. I, I like the letter here. Um, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here to discuss the plugi- plugishness of Wolfie and Cycle Spook, Werewolf by Night and Ghost Rider, to it. One, they are both supernatural beings. Two, they are not clear-cut superhero figures. Three, they both seem to be California types, and since Wolfie lives here, and Cycle Spook seems to be headed in this direction. Four, they are both good, bad people. Jack has killed at least two people by my count, and Johnny is a servant of Satan. Any way you slice it, this does not make them angels. Five, neither fits in the stands established Marvel Cosmos, Spidey, Cap, etc. Six, both fit into the Plugian world. In fact, the two were made to guess together. Their personalities seem to mesh, and heaven knows they have something in common. The possibilities are endless, and I expect to see Spooky and the Wolf together soon, along with other crossover match- matched denizens of the Plug Cosmos. Gene Black, Alameda, California. So, one thing I like about that is the idea that within the Marvel Universe proper, there is a subcategory of, like, a Plugverse. Yes. I, I, I actually love that idea. And she's not wrong. I'm assuming it's a she. Yeah. I, Jean, Jean can go either way, but I'm assuming it's a she. Yeah, I mean, it, it actually, a lot of these characters that Plug is heavily involved in do have some similarities that would suggest crossovers and connections. And I like their reply, too. Interestingly enough, Jean, you're the only Marvelite to have suggested this team-up. And of all the suggestions we've heard, it does seem to mo- make the most sense. Perhaps because of the California gothic flavor that pervades Werewolf by Night has also found its way now and then to the Ghost Rider strip, even though Mike is no longer drawing it. In any event, we'll see. Who knows what dire and demonic plans lurk in the shadowy corridors of Lin Wein and Mike Plew's combined imaginations. They're not even sure they know. Huh. Which, there are several things I like here. First, sadly, we do get confirmation that Mike Plug is no longer drawing Ghost Rider. Right. I imagine that the... Uh the push for uh, Monster of Frankenstein probably has something to do with that. But I also really like this phrase, California Gothic. Yeah, yeah. And of course, my brain starts going, what other things fit into California Gothic? Yeah, it, it's a weird sort of, vi- like, I mean, in movies, like, there, there's sort of a difference between, in the especially in the 80s, a difference between East Coast and West Coast horror. Um, and uh, you can, honestly, if you haven't, uh, Joe Bob Briggs talks a little bit about that in uh, the first last drive-in marathon he did um, when uh, he shows uh, sorority babes in the slime ball bolorama, um, which is very much a West Coast 80s horror movie. Uh, and he talks a little bit about the difference between the two. I think I think East Coast horror is very much about the urban environment. Mm-hmm. And with I think West Coast horror, you get more of the the malls, the desert, the suburbs. And it's, it's a difference in texture, you know, especially back then. East Coast horror, because it was urban, was very grimy. It was very sort of uh, street level, you know, whereas West Coast horror at the time tended to still be fairly bright and sunny and there were wide open spaces and, 
you know, it's just a very different feeling. And I think you get that some with these two comics. Like Ghost Rider, the whole idea of a demon with a motorcycle suggests... It, it suggests something like Easy Rider as much as it does horror. Yeah. Sorry, I, I got distracted by this other other letter. This is my first time looking at the letters pages for this issue. Um, I, I don't know if you're looking at this or not, but one thing I liked in the letters column was uh, it's the response to the last letter where they're complimenting uh, the... Uh, uh, creative teams of the Werewolf by Night and that they're looking forward to uh, Frankenstein. Um, and one of the things that the response points out is that, uh, according to the letters column at least, um, Lynn Ween was Jerry Conway's personal choice to replace him on Werewolf by Night. That makes sense. And honestly, I'm really en- I'm, not, I'm I'm enjoying Lynn Ween on Werewolf by Night. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, we've always known that he was very good at the horror characters. True, true, but no, that's not the one that got that kind of distracted me. Um, it's the middle letter. Oh, the one from the werewolf. Yeah, dear sirs, I don't find your story amusing. Werewolf by night, by the night light of the full moon and quarter moon, I turn into one. When this happens, I get a horrible yearning to break out of my skin, turn into a bloodthirsty wolf. I can't lock myself up. If you must write about the creature I am, write my life story. By the way, the picture of me is very well done. It all started when my great-grandfather died. We were cleaning out his house. I was in the basement checking out his engineering equipment and moved the machine and kicked the wall and found that a few blocks were loose. Knock- I knocked them out and was astonished at what I saw. The full moon, I vow, was my grandmother's, my grandfather's body. It couldn't have been, but after that I was different. I ha- had no time for love and romance. Then on the 22nd of June, I flew into a terrible rage. It went so far as I've killed 115 animals. I'll be looking forward to seeing my life story. The Werewolf of Laporte, Indiana. This is a weird fucking letter. That is that is wild. And, like, I'm actually concerned about this person because there are so many spelling errors in this. Yeah. And grammatical er- errors in the letter. Yeah. If it was, you know, because I used to work at a copy center. And you always knew who the crazy person printing out their manifestos by the lack of punctuation and... Weird capitalizations. Yeah, weird capitalizations in their in their letters. And this kind of seems like it has that. And even the Marvel staff seems a little put off, put off by this. Yeah. Um, we hate to admit it, but this letter scared us silly. Till next issue, if Mike's hands stop shaking enough to draw it, stay happy. And if you live in Laporte, Indiana... Move to Terra Hout, <laughs> which woo. Yeah, that, that's wild. Um, but all of that said, um, I thought this was a good issue. Like it was, it was light on developing Jack Russell specifically. But as we were saying last episode, we got a little bit more of the supporting cast. We got the introdu- introduction of some new characters with the promise of seeing them more in the future. Um, and mm-hmm. that, that's, that's what we wanted. So I think, I think this is a, a move in the right direction. Also, this is, it also has a really good cover. Oh, the cover's um, great. The, the cover is fantastic. You've got, uh, the werewolf in a cage with, um, Reva, um, addressing the audience and also, of course, us, the reader. Step right up, ladies and gentlemen, a mere 50 cents to see the one and only werewolf in captivity. Carnival of Fear, perhaps the most fearful man into wolf epic ever told. It's a really good cover. Yeah, the only uh, thing I would have changed is I would have made the price to see the werewolf the same as the cover price of the book. 
Yes. That would have been perfect. Um, but, you know, otherwise it's a really, really good Mike Blue cover. It is. And, and the art continues at that level throughout. I mean, we don't get as many iconic images as we have in some of the other issues, but it's just really solid action and horror. Yeah, I don't think we got, like, say, an epic montage, like we've got, oh, sorry, an epic kind of, like, collage page as we've gotten before. Right. But there is a really good page in there, I think, number 21, where the crowd is watching Jack turn into a werewolf. Yeah. And the the face the faces of the crowd, as you pan across, but also as Jack is transforming at the top of the page, yep. is really great. And actually, and actually, the page right before that is kind of a recreation of the cover except with jack in human form right wild man see his amazing transformation right before your eyes and of course they're advertising him as the fabulous wild man of borneo of course because i don't know i guess you can't advertise werewolf right um but yeah no i i am looking forward to seeing the resolution of this story yeah uh werewolf by night has consistently been the book that keeps us coming back for more. And I'm definitely interested in seeing where we go from here. Right. But that does it for Jack and Friends. So we'll be right back with Tomb of Dracula number eight after this break. Hey, Trey, do we have any Mentos? Um, probably. What, you need like a breath mint? Oh, I could use a little freshening up, but no, I'll, I'll, I'll explain later. Oh, okay, sure. I'll find some. Okay, cool. It doesn't matter what comes, fresh goes better in life, with mental special full of life. Nothing gets to you, staying fresh, staying cool, with mental special full of life. Fresh goes better, mental special. Fresh goes better with mental special full of life. Mentos. The Fresh Maker. And we're back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Our second issue today is Tomb of Dracula number 9, Death from the Sea. Cover date is June 1973, written by Marv Wolfman. Pencils are by Gene Colan. Inker is Vince Coletta. Colorist is Glennis Ween. Letterer is Artie Semick. Editor is Roy Thomas. And the cover artist is Gil Kane. A fisherman in the town of Littlepool reels in what he thinks is the biggest fish he ever caught. But to his surprise, on the other end of the line is Dracula's lifeless body. His body is taken to the nearby church where he soon awakens and is horrified to be surrounded by crucifixes. He tries to escape in bat form, but is not strong enough to break through the window. He ricochets off the walls and collapses in agony on the stone floor. Suddenly, a priest opens the door and Dracula rushes into the night air. Priest follows to check on what he thinks is a sick man, and Dracula tells him a version of the events of last issue, leaving out the fact that he's a vampire. In truth, after the last issue ended, he had tried to feed on a young couple to regain his strength, but was still too weak to overpower his intended victims. He collapsed, and was then found by a biker gang, which tried to rob him. He fought back, but was overpowered by their sheer numbers, until they were scared off by approaching sirens. At this point, Dracula fell into the water unconscious, where the fisherman would soon find him. Still weak, Dracula resolves to stay in Littlepool and feed on the villagers, and a young man named David offers to let him stay in his house, over the objections of his girlfriend Andrea. Later, Dracula goes out to feed, 
but realizing his intended victim is Andrea, he hesitates, and eventually finds another woman to feed on. David asks Dracula to take him along to London when he's ready to leave, but Dracula tries to talk him out of leaving his hometown. They're interrupted by Andrea's scream, as Dracula's earlier victim has gone on a vampiric rampage of her own. Meanwhile, Quincy Harker and the rest of the vampire hunters are in London, training for Dracula's eventual return, when Harker receives a phone call requiring him to leave immediately. Back in Littlepool, Dracula tries to help David rescue Andrea from the newborn vampires. The priest from the church assembles a mob to destroy Dracula. They chase him into the forest, but don't realize there are other vampires lurking nearby. The two newborns are quickly dispatched, and David sends the mob off in the wrong direction. In gratitude, Dracula offers to let David accompany him, but having seen Dracula's true nature, he declines, and Dracula bids the couple farewell. First thing I need to say here is I'm really not digging Vince Coletta on Gene Cullen's artwork here. Yeah, it's not my favorite. It seems very rushed, and it almost made it seem like a completely different artist. Yeah, no, it, it does. It's I don't know if he's obscuring things that are in the pencils or if he's adding additional stuff to it but something does not it doesn't feel like the the art that we have been used to up to this point oh it's vince coletta he's definitely not adding stuff <laughs> so he yeah i mean i think far more likely that he's leaving out detail yeah um definitely not digging the art here right and i'm definitely placing that on coletta <laughs> Um, we also I do we also have mm-hmm. yet another cover that emphasizes an aspect of the comic that ends up being fairly unimportant. Right? You you from the cover you're thinking, oh, he's gonna go up against like Catholic vampire hunters. Yeah, and that the fire cross is some like relic weapon from the Crusades or something. Right? Because the cover it says there is no escape, Count Dracula. Even you cannot stand before the fire cross. And it's like firing a beam of of energy into Dracula, which is causing him to burn. A cross-shaped beam of energy. Exactly. Um, and, of course, you get into the book, and it's literally just random small-town priests carrying a flaming cross. Yep. Like, as in a cross he set on fire. Which is not a great image, let me tell you. No, no, definitely, definitely bad connotation in the modern day. Uh, where is Littlepool? Um, I'm thinking English countryside. Because they're like, it was founded in 1868, and I'm just like, what got founded in 1868 in England? Right, right. I was thinking maybe it was an Um, island fishing village? I I wonder if, with the industrialization of, uh, fish production, if it's a town that built up around that. Possibly. Like, like... Like, if there was some sort of, like, processing plant or something that was built, then you would have a town that builds up alongside it. I suppose. Um, that makes sense. And, and the, even that, like, Littlepool, I think, is meant to make us think of Liverpool, which is an industrial town. Oh, definitely. Um, but, yeah, no, the dates, as usual with Tomb of Dracula, the dates don't make much sense. No. Um, we also established here that Dracula is the worst house guest ever. Yes. But David is not the best host ever, either. No, no, these, this is, like, the whole situation is weird. Um, like, that nobody finds anything about Dracula's story or appearance or attire to be the least bit suspicious. Right. And, okay, he, 
they let Dracula into their home. They they realize he's weak and let him rest. But David is going to wake him up in the middle of the night and says, Hey, when you leave town, I'm going with you. Right. <laughs> also, let's just let it be said here. David is a goddamn idiot. He is. Um, he's pretty dense. Even when he realizes that Dracula is Dracula, he still doesn't let the priest kill him. Right. Well, because Dracula saved his girlfriend. From vampires he created. Sure, if you want to be technical about it. Also, Gladys has the fastest turning I have ever seen in media. Oh, yeah. Ever. I I was very confused because, like, literally, every time we have seen Dracula take a victim like that up to this point, the victim has ended up dead. Right. And maybe, much later, they'll jump up from the slab like they got... Like Patton Oswalt in that previous issue. <laughs> right. Um, my only my only sort of thinking there is that it doesn't make much sense, but something about him being so weak that he couldn't finish her off. But to I, I would I would have I would have expected the opposite, that because he was so hungry because of his weakness, that he would immediately drain her completely of blood and there would be nothing left to come back. Exactly. Honestly, the real hero of this story is the priest. Right. Um, who is portrayed from the second half on basically as a villain. Right. But if you're thinking about this logically, the priest is the good guy. Because this is the Lord of Vampires. He has already led to the death of two people in your town. Two innocent people. And then let, let, let them loose on the countryside, wreaking havoc... And I would honestly say, as a priest, as a shepherd of this community, as a protector of this community, you have an obligation to try to destroy this demon that has been set loose onto your town. Right. That the priest is the real hero of this issue. Right. Except for some... But it is weirdly written with Dracula as the protagonist. We are asked to sympathize with Dracula at almost every turn. Even though there's this great line on the last page... For a human, you show remarkable intelligence, David, and you would be of great advantage to me when the order of vampirism rules this world. Hmm. Join my crusade, David. Yeah, like he gets first off, he gets the whole Darth Vader speech. First time we're hearing about a crusade. Yeah. Of vampirism ruling the world. Also, David is incredibly blasé about this. <laughs> it's like not now, maybe <laughs> next week. Yeah, it's like the Lord of the Vampires is inviting you to join his crusade. Nah, I'm cool, man. I'm just gonna stick around here a bit. And Dracula's response is equally blasé. It's like, that's okay. I understand. You'll figure it out someday. That you'll come yeah. you'll come around. One day you shall see that vampirism is the new order, and you will join me. Until then, you have the protection and friendship of Dracula. <laughs> Which is probably for the best, because the rest of the town people are gonna turn and defeat these guys the minute Dracula leaves town. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Also, how weird is it that, like, the heroes of this comic have, like, a one-page cameo? Well, technically, Dracula is the hero of this comic. He is the title character. That doesn't make him the hero. Like, like Frank and Rachel and Taj and Quincy, like, those are our protagonists over the last several issues. I would actually disagree with you and say Dracula is the protagonist and they are the supporting cast. It's the same way where if, like, Spider-Man is out in Los Angeles, we'll still get a one-page cameo of the staff of the Daily Bugle talking about, hey, where's Peter Parker? Sure. Uh, okay, protagonist is maybe too structurally oriented. But but I think hero is appropriate. Like, 
they are the heroes because Dracula, even though he's the title character, is a villain. Oh, yes. You know, with the whole new order of vampirism. Right. Like, that is reinforced in this episode. (laughs) I just, I cannot get over how Blase David and his girlfriend are about this. It's just like, oh, no, we're cool. Oh, yeah. Um... And, but yeah, like, and so you've got your vampire hunters there, like, doing target practice with a little Dracula cutout. And and there's the mysterious phone call, which pulls the Harkers away, and that's all which, we get. Which, it reminds me of, do you know the character Chad, pay, played by Pete Davidson from SNL? Yeah, I think the most famous one is the slasher outside, uh, calling him on the phone, telling him, I'm, I'm going to kill you, Chad. Oh, no thanks. (laughs) That's David here. David is Chad from SNL. Yes. Yeah. Okay, whatever. In in fact, if we're we're headcasting, Pete Davidson will be playing playing David um, in the uh, big screen adaptation of this story. Yeah, I can can get with that. Um, (laughs) Of course, now now I'm thinking about John Mulaney as Dracula. Oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. See, this this is what you do. This is what you do. John Mulaney is Frank Drake, and Bill Hader is Dracula. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. Do you, do you remember the Bill Hader Vincent Price Christmas specials? Oh, I love those. For many a time of cheer, for others, a cruel reminder that the bitter chill of winter is upon us. The one night of the year when an intruder in blood-red garb is greedy with joy. When ghosts of often visit the... <coughs> hey guys, <coughs> can we cut the smoke, please? <coughs> Just go to the package, go to the package. And now, Colgate presents Vincent Price's 1954 Christmas Special. Now, please welcome your host, fresh from the River Styx, Vincent Price. <laughs> so good. Okay, before we before we get off on too big of a SNL tangent, right. I think we've said all we need to say about Too Much Dracula yeah, this week. Uh, except that apparently the next issue is Ship of Horrors, which suggests to me that we're going to be getting some real weird fanfic coming up. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. You're welcome. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that does sort of sum things up for this not terribly eventful issue of Tomb of Dracula. Um, hopefully, when we do move on to the Ship of Horrors, um, we'll actually get back to the ongoing story. All in all, I have to say, it's it's an okay comic in the way that none of Tomb of Dracula is really bad. Um uh, but we should probably move on. Right. We'll be right back with Marvel Spotlight number 10, starring Ghost Rider. Hey, Trey, do we have any Pop Rocks? Um, probably. Um, I know we've got some candy in the, the cabinet over there. How old is it? You, you know what? It doesn't matter. Just get, just hand it to me. Fair enough. Hey, what's happening? The Cracklins, what's happening? Pop Rocks. There's bags of the bike. Pop Rocks. The sizzle makes you giggle. Pop Rocks. Introducing Pop Rocks Cracklin' Candy. They'll burst all over your mouth in cherry, grape, and orange. Pop Rocks, candy, 
Welcome back, Tomb Believers, where we're continuing our coverage today with Marvel Spotlight number 10, featuring Ghost Rider. The story on this issue is The Coming of Witch Woman. Writer is Gary Friedrich. Penciler is Tom Sutton. Inker is Jim Mooney. Colorist is Stan Goldberg. Letterer is John Costanza. Editor is Roy Thomas. Cover artist is Herb Trimpey. Our story continues from last issue, with Johnny Blaze, the Ghost Rider, racing across the desert, trying desperately to get the snake-bit Roxanne Simpson to a hospital. Meanwhile, at the Native American sacrifice they just escaped, the followers of the murderous shaman Snake Dance have turned against him, threatening to lynch the medicine man before his daughter, Linda Littletree, intercedes with a few well-placed rifle blasts. Linda, who has just returned from college, is horrified at the murderous actions of her father and races off to the hospital as well with a vial of the life-giving anti-venom. Which is lucky, because as he arrives in the emergency room in dramatic fashion after a standoff with the staff, Ghost Rider finds the hospital is out of the serum and must attempt a potentially fatal total blood transfusion. Leaving the doctors to their work, the Ghost Rider speeds away from the hospital at almost 100 miles an hour, drawing the attention of motorcycle cops, and the chase quickly turns into an epic police chase. Luckily for Roxanne, Linda Littletree arrives with the serum just in time to spare her the transfusion, and on hearing the name Simpson, Linda remembers that as a little girl, her life had been saved by a motorcycle cop named Crash Simpson and muses how ironic it is that her life now becomes intertwined with those connected to his by order of the master. Linda hops on a motorcycle and joins the entourage pursuing the Ghost Rider, which looks to now include the entire police force. The police have even brought out a police helicopter, which looks to have cornered a Ghost Rider until a strange portal appears midair calling Ghost Rider towards it. Ghost Rider enters the portal thinking it a means to escape the police, but instead he is met by Linda, who has transformed herself into the Witch Woman and promises him death by the order of Satan. Well, this was a weird one. It was a weird one, but let's talk about the positive real quick. That is a great Herb Trimpey cover here. Oh yeah, I love the cover. Uh, very good. Very, got just enough of that sort of trimpy, stylized look to it. Um, like, it's not going for anything sort of realistic in, in the way that some covers do. No. And it's it's Ghost Rider um, riding up the stairs of the hospital with, I'm a, yeah, definitely has to be Roxanne, uh, draped in his arms, barely conscious, and the cops um, aiming guns at him. Yeah. It's good stuff. And that like there's a car in the background that's crashed into a fire hydrant that's spewing water. Like there's a lot of little details that make it fun. And I honestly think that Trimpy turns in the best depiction of Ghost Rider that isn't Mike Plug that we've seen yet. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't look like he's wearing a mask. Yeah, I mean that's not a large field at this point, but still, I think if we compare it to the work later on, it's honestly superior right i agree but let's go ahead and talk about the issue so we we basically are still continuing this ongoing story of uh of uh snake dance yeah although for a minute there it looked like the native americans had gotten the right idea 
and we're going to lynch Snake Dance. Right. Which, you know, I'm not usually in favor of lynching people, but whatever brings the storyline to a close quicker. Right. Yeah, it, it. I don't know about you, but it felt to me, like, I kept, as the issue went on, I kept thinking to myself, did I miss an issue? Like, is... Because it felt like there were things that people knew or were assuming about each other that I was not 100% clear on. It definitely takes a jump with this issue. It seemed like it's almost as if they realize, oh crap, this this storyline up to this point has been crap. Let's change the entire direction of the story. Yeah. Which they do with the introduction of Linda Littletree. Right. Which sort of helps us move away from the not very well thought out version of Native American mythology into the more familiar sort of Satanism stuff that we've seen in other Ghost Rider issues. Right. Because, surprisingly enough, um, the master that Linda Littletree is referring to is not an evil Time Lord. Right. Or the guy from Manos to the Hands of Fate. Right, right. No, I can see where you might think one of those things that that's that's an easy assumption um yeah but but no we she apparently uh left the reservation to go to college and fell in with a bunch of satanists as you do i mean probably probably started out playing that D and yep. um then fell into a life of satanism yep yep because those are the only alternatives oh yeah You're uh, either a christian or a satanist and uh and we we know which side she's fallen in with the cool one <laughs> <laughs> and uh and i mean obviously this is not the last we've seen of her because uh the, it's a to be continued right um but even beyond that i can go ahead and tell you spoiler warning next issue won't be the last we've seen of her either oh, okay yeah she shows up again later all right which is fine she, she's an okay character she she definitely has some agency of her own yeah um, we don't get a whole lot of her as the witch woman yet, um, so we don't know what that deal is. But um, but yeah, she she seems like a good foil for Johnny Blaze in that she has her own weird connection to Satan. She also is pretty good on a motorcycle, and by the end of the issue, seems to have some sort of magical powers. She also, strangely enough, has a connection to Crash Simpson, which we get a retcon in this issue that he was a this cop. This is the town. Yeah, well, this is apparently is the town where Roxanne and Johnny Blaze and Crash Simpson lived. Right. Which does not make sense because based on some of the earlier issues a couple of, of issues, A couple of issues ago, they were outsiders. Right. Very clearly, like, disliked by the locals because they were outsiders. But now, apparently, this is their hometown. Yeah. Which, okay... Sure. Why not? I mean, it it on the one hand it's weird, but on the other hand there's a part of me that's just thinking it doesn't matter. Like the backstory for these characters has been so wild and loose up to this point anyway that you just go with it. And honestly, I feel like because we're finally getting some direction in this title, I'm willing to dis- excuse it. Mhm. Um I, I'm I'm very much ready for the snake dance storyline to be over. Yeah, and I I, di- I think you're right. I think introducing Linda as the witch woman is the way out. Although I'm get I'm guessing my theory from last issue last episode is incorrect that snake dance is not the rodeo guy in disguise. Right. 
because apparently he does have people who know him and are related to him. So probably not a right. Scooby Doo ending here coming here. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, we get another police chase. Yep. Which is honestly the most boring part of the issue. It, it not a whole lot. I mean, it's he he shoots fire at them a few times. Yeah, as he does. I they tr- I, I I'm guessing it's because car chases and police chases were considered exciting at the time. Mm-hmm. But if I wanted to watch a car chase, I can just tune into the news. Right. And and on top of that, like Ghost Rider just shows very poor judgment throughout the issue. Yes. Like when he rides his motorcycle into the hospital, which I'm sure those emissions were great for the patients. Um, oh yeah. And a noise. And uh and then threatens the doctor to mm-hmm. to uh treat Roxanne and when the doctor refuses because it seems like a crazy uh publicity stunt which it honestly does um ghost rider yep. responds by setting the doctor's lab coat on fire yeah cuz you know i am always more motivated to do things when i'm being threatened or when i'm on fire well always of course <laughs> yeah no it's it's weird um again it's not I have read far worse comics than this. And because we've mostly gotten away from the focus of the last couple of issues, it's not offensive in the ways that those earlier issues went right up to the line of being. Yeah. And part of that is because you do have the Native American followers kind of waking up and saying, wait a minute, this is bullshit. Right. Which is good. Any kind of attack against mysticism is good in my book. Right. Um, and we've now, apparently, at, as of the last page, uh, teleported Ghost Rider somewhere completely different. So I'm very curious to find out where he is now and what will happen next. And why does Linda have hair extensions? Yeah. Because her hair totally got longer. Yeah. And you can kind of see where the hair extensions go in, too. Yeah, where they drew more hair. Yeah. I'm guessing they're like, uh, let's give her longer hair. Yeah. Why does she have longer hair? magic probably so yeah i mean the art is so so the action is so so but it seems to be getting us out of that story we didn't like yeah which is great (laughs) that's that is a step in the right direction um i i do miss mike plug on this book though yeah and apparently he is gone forever yeah or at least for the foreseeable future right so, although, honestly, if they can get Herb Trimpey doing the ex- interiors, I'd be a happy camper. That would be nice. That that would be a good fit. You don't. I don't usually think of him as a, a horror artist, but that that's a good fit. But I'm pretty sure he's still doing Hulk at this time. So right, right. He may be busy. Yeah. All right, I think that does it for Marvel Spotlight. We'll be right back with our last issue of the episode... And that's going to be Fear, sorry, Adventures into Fear, number 14. But before that, Trey, you got any duct tape? Duct tape? Um, yeah. Uh, that That's basically what's holding my uh, recording setup together at this point. I, I'm going to need some of that duct tape. Uh, okay. Give me the duct tape tray. But, but, it's... Give me the goddamn duct tape tray. Okay. Welcome. I am the invisible man, and this is my invisible son. Greetings. 
adding a new bug to his collection. With Scotch Magic Transparent Tape. Unlike this old-fashioned cellophane tape, it isn't shiny on the bug. It remains virtually invisible year after year. And so do we. <laughs> Scotch brand Magic Transparent Tape. It's magic. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Our final issue today is Adventure into Fear, number 14, The Demon Plague. Cover date is June 1973. Written by Steve Gerber. Pencils are Val Myrick. Inker is Chick Stone. Colorist is Stan Goldberg. Letterer is Artie Simic. And the editor is Roy Thomas. Somewhere in the swamp, Man-Thing is attacked from all sides by all manner of swamp-dwelling animals. Meanwhile, in a St. Louis suburb, a kid's game of cowboys devolves into violence, and in a Cincinnati office, a businessman is attacked by his secretary. In Detroit, a driver's thoughts suddenly turn murderous as he aims his vehicle at nearby pedestrians. But for now, we return to Man-Thing, who dispatches the crocodiles and vultures with little problem until only one opponent remains. The enraged croc lunges for Man-Thing, only to become trapped in the ooze that forms his body. The croc thrashes in fear, and its fear activates the Man-Thing's burning touch. Not far from the swamp, Joshua Kale and his grandchildren watch the TV news reports on the strange outbursts happening around the world. While the TV anchor is unsure of the source, Joshua recognizes the signs as human minds and souls being taken over by netherworld demons. As night falls, he summons his cult to try and counter the demons via incantation. They gather at the nexus of magical forces in the swamp, but their chanting is unsuccessful, and the cultists blame Kale for losing their sacred tome. While they are distracted, the vapors they conjured swarm around Joshua's granddaughter, Jennifer. Man-Thing senses her danger and approaches her, and suddenly, the two of them vanish. Suddenly, Man-Thing and Jennifer are in chains on an alien world a million universes away. They are soon introduced to a strange wizard calling himself Dakim, the Enchanter. He tells them they are in a world called Sant, and that the mists of Maylock brought them here to find the tomb of Zared Na, which will protect the Earth from the netherworld demons. However, Dakim plans to kill them because Man-Thing's very existence could threaten the demons' invasion of Earth. Yet they are given a fighting chance, as Man-Thing will fight in the arena. The champion gladiator Mongu emerges and for a time seems to have the upper hand, but his axe does no damage to Man-Thing's oozing form. As Mongu's confidence gives way to fear, Man-Thing reaches out and his burning touch fuses the axe to Mongu's hand. Dakim decides they earned their freedom, and with a mysterious glint in his eye, transports them back to the swamp, where her grandfather and the other cultists are preparing for a final battle with the demons. I feel like Steve Gerber read the part where somebody in the letters column last issue said that Man-Thing wasn't suited for sword and sorcery, and took that as a challenge. Absolutely. I I had a lot of fun with this issue. It is weird. It is goofy. It is very Steve Gerber. Uh, but it's fun. Right? And it's not even like the weirdest Steve Gerber is going to get on this run. Oh, no. No. We, he is dipping his toes into the water of the weirdness of what's possible in Marvel. Right. 
But it's very enjoyable. It is. I love the first page, the splash. Of uh, Man-Thing fighting the animals? Yeah. Um, there's, like, snakes wrapped around his arms. Uh, he's, like, holding down a crocodile with one hand while vultures swarm at his head. It's a really cool image. It is. Um, something that just occurred to me uh-huh. as we as you were going through your summary, is Sant a reference to Dune? I think so. Okay. Because I just read Dune, like, a few weeks ago for the yeah. first time. And I'm now incredibly sensitive to these. Like, I was watching uh, the Joe Bob Christmas special, and I was watching Phantasm for the first time in years, and I realized, that's a Dune reference? That's a Dune reference? <laughs> that's a Dune reference? Oh, yeah. Like, there's a scene in Phantasm where a kid is told to put his hand in a box and told that fear is the killer. Yep. That's yep. a, that's straight out of Dune. Yes, it is. And I'm realizing how incredibly influential Dune was onto 70s science fiction. Yeah, and pop culture more broadly. Like, it, it wormed its way. Because, like, Phantasm, like, I guess it's sort of sci-fi, but, like, it's not the kind of sci-fi that Dune is. It's not space opera. Aw, you said wormed its way. Aw, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but... Yeah, I mean, Star Wars takes a ton from Dune. Yep. To the point of having a sandworm skeleton in there. Yep. And later having a space worm. Yep. So, definitely very influential. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think Sant is meant to be sort of a, a joke on, on Dune. Nice. I like the pop culture references. I think we're definitely getting more pop culture references than we would have gotten before somebody like Steve Gerber came on. Yes. With... The driver singing "Raindrops Falling on My Head," <laughs> and we're stopping there uh, no, no, for no. copyright reasons. No, no, no! Raindrops keep falling on my kill. I believe is what he actually said. Kill. <laughs> Which that is a cover I would like to hear. <laughs> Coming soon to Tomb of Idea Records. <laughs> um, that that and the Net Gun song. Right, right. We're we're slowly amassing a a playlist of of things that we should do. Um, the art is not as good as it has been previously, but it's passable. It's fine. It's, um, the stuff in the swamp, I think, comes off pretty well because the sort of lower amount of detail is less noticeable just because there's so much going on. True. Um, but I think the stuff with, with people in it tends to be less impressive. Right. It just feels like this may have been a quickly put together issue right. not as quickly put together as the dracula issue right right which feels like oh my god this is fastly put together i also just really enjoy how blasé um the kale family is about how you know well better call up the cultists yep that's because that's what you do don't you know <laughs> so i'm guessing from the way he's set up that we are going to be seeing mongu again I would think so. I'm, I can't remember, um, but I would... Because they, they make a point of not killing him. And they fuse his axe to his hand. Yeah, yeah. Which is pretty gnarly. Yes, it is. But pretty cool, too. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and, uh... Yeah, no, the stuff on the alien planet is just crazy. <laughs> like, I, like, it is legit like a wizard off the cover of an early D&D book. Yes, you're not wrong there. Um... Uh, I do like how Mongo's like, oh man, this is just going to be an easy kill. And then he starts freaking out when he delivers the kill shot 
and Man-Thing doesn't die. Yeah, where it just sort of sinks into him. So that's when he's afraid, and that's when Man-Thing can actually do something to him. Yep. And I, I do kind of like that in, in cases like that, Man-Thing's strategy is to just sort of passively dodge and weave. Like, just sort of wait the other person out. Yeah. Which he, he can. He, he's indestructible. Right, right. But, it, but like, that fight is distinct from when the animals attack him earlier, where he actually does, like, aggressively fight back. Yes. Which, maybe because it's a living... It's a conscious being, rather than, say, an animal. Right. The man-thing thinks of it differently. Like, I don't want to hurt you, but you I could just kind of lay into. Right. Um, we get a little bit more of the psychic connection between man-thing and Jennifer. Yes, which, as her grandfather points out, does not bode well for her. Right. Um, I'm curious what the perp- what the meaning of uh, the glint in the wizard's eye is supposed to be. Yeah. Like, what did he do as he t- sent them back? We did not get an immediate uh, resolution to that. Right. Which is interesting because usually we would get something immediate to that. Right. And and it's and it is at the very end of the issue. Um. And it's sort of weird, just structurally, that it very much sets up for the next issue. The final battle is yet to come, but instead of to be continued, it has Finis. Yeah, so I'm guessing the final battle is going to be a subplot we're going to be following for a, a good bit. That, that is possible. Did you read the backup? I did not. Me neither. Um, but it's there. It is there. There is a backup story. Um, Fear, at this point, still does have more than one... Uh, feature in it uh the the main title and then the the backup um is it a reprint yeah almost definitely yeah it looks like a reprint yeah uh looks like somebody killing their wife and then falling off a waterfall yeah i mean you're not picking up adventures into fear for the backup you're picking up adventures into fear for man thing and the backup is just filler right which I kind of would have liked to have seen what they had done with this issue with a full page count. Right. Rather than just the uh, 17 pages, 15 pages. Um, there's an interesting letter at the end um, where um, the the writer basically calls out Marvel for uh, ex- like every issue of Man-Thing taking a different approach. Um, so a fight against evil or a human interest story or whatever... Um, and accuses them of being unprepared for a character like Man-Thing, that that uh, Conway didn't know what to do with him, and Gerber is still experimenting, and then, like, provides a laundry list of other creators that the writer would rather see uh, working on the character. Um, so his suggestion is uh, Lynn Ween, uh, but other suggestions in order are Archie Goodwin, Stan Lee, Gardner Fox, and Steve Englehart. Yeah, which... I th- Steve Gerber is still an untried entity at this point. Right. So nobody's like, oh my god, keep Steve Gerber on there. They're kind of like saying, dish this Gerber guy, he's just doing nutty stuff. Although, although by the end of the letter, he actually says what we just said, that uh, he wouldn't mind seeing Gerber stay on the book. It's a weird letter. Um, But... You're right. But uh, the the response is that, yes, Gerber is on as permanent artist and... uh, Scripter. Or, yes, Scripter, sorry. And Val Merrick is uh, uh, settling in as permanent penciler. Okay. That, that's not the worst thing in the world. Nope, I can live with it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I had a... I think this was... 
it may not be objectively the best issue that we read for this episode. Um, that's probably the Werewolf by Night issue. Um, I agree. But I had the most fun reading this one. See, I had a lot of fun reading the Werewolf by Night issue. I thought the stuff going on there was lots of fun. We were getting nice development with Jack Russell and his subplots. I, I think I think the weakest issue, I'm going to say Marvel Spotlight. Yeah, that I, I agree. Um, because Dracula maintains a certain baseline. And so far, yes. we've not really seen it drop below that baseline. There, there's a consistency to it. Um, yeah. Ghost Rider is still all over the place. Yes, it is. Where, again, Satan is just too general of a antagonist. Right. And they're, I think. And, and, I mean, knowing what we know about the Marvel Universe, they're going to figure out ways of resolving that. Yeah, kind of. I mean, and by resolving, I mean uh, ridiculously overcomplicating it to the point of further confusion. Yes, that's what we mean. The Dracula issue is not the best the title has ever been, but it does some interesting things storytelling-wise, right. especially with the, the whole Dracula telling a story one way and then the art depicting it another way. Right, yeah, that, the flashback that takes up sort of the middle portion of the issue is, is well done. Um, yeah. It was. It made it harder to summarize, for sure, but, uh, but just in terms of storytelling, it was an interesting way of getting us to see Dracula both as he really is and also as the people around him are seeing him. I I definitely don't want to see Vince Coletta coming back on Inks. I, I could do without that, too. Um, but I think that does it for uh, Man-Thing for this episode. What do you think? I, I think so. Like I say, it, it was fun. It's uh, Gerber is finding his voice with the character and also uh, more broadly with the book. Um We've got a lot of nice setup for some story th- storyline elements to come, and uh, I'm looking forward to more from that creative team now that it's pretty much set. You're right, and the strongest issues I think in here also have the strongest subplots developing, yes. like the Werewolf by Night, like the uh, Man Thing stuff. We have subplots developing in a universe developing around these characters, and a, and a strong um, supporting cast. Yeah, I think with Tomb of Dracula, the supporting cast is strong, but we barely see him in this issue. Yeah. And with Ghost Rider, I don't know. I mean, I mean Ro- we don't even... Roxanne spent the whole issue unconscious. Right. And we didn't even see Slade in this issue. Nope. I have to expect you to be like, Slade who? I mean, I yeah, I had to think about it for a second. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think we're seeing a correlation between... Um, the the strength the the degree to which the issue makes use of all of the tools in the toolbox and how good it is right so um as we wrap up a few things to go over um wait james what are you holding it's a bomb what i used the coke you gave me and the prop rocks and the mentos and the duct tape and and i made a bomb there is no way that that's going to work why do you have an explosive device in here because there is no way I'm missing Endgame. Come on, we're 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 busting out of this place. Oh gosh, we're gonna get in so much trouble. Five, four. Oh, you might want to stand clear. Three. This is a bad two, idea. And, and actually, maybe put the comics under a tarp too, just in case. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Right. One. <coughs> okay. 
Okay, um, we better get out of here fast. I did not expect that to work nearly as well as it did. Please rate, review us, subscribe. Let us hear from you on Twitter. Uh, you can reach us at our Gmail account. Um, we've got to go. Assuming this doesn't work out for us, we'll be back next episode with Dracula Lives Number 2. But until next time, see ya, suckers! Okay, now let's run. Bye! Bye! You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tombers Excelsior! Ha 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 